And if you've got your Bible with you in whatever form you brought it, you can turn to Mark chapter 8. We're arriving at a very important place in Mark's gospel. This is kind of a watershed, central thought that we're getting to. So it's been building up to this, and it's a big apex in Mark's gospel. Uh, I've told you before about a couple of the strange jobs I did when I was trying to make my way through college and to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. One of those things was a mystery shopper, and I would go in and try to shop for stuff, and then I would go back and make a report on the person who served me so that they could evaluate them. And at, at times I would think, oh, if you only knew who was standing in front of you right now, you would not be saying the things you're saying to me right now. Well, Sir Richard Branson did the same kind of thing. I have mentioned his name before, too, but he did that in a show. This is, goodness, probably a couple of decades ago, maybe. I don't know. It's a long time ago. He was interviewing several candidates that had flown into London to be interviewed by him to be a leader in one of the arms of his many companies because he had started eight successful companies. But he dressed up incognito, and he became a London cabbie. And he drove a taxi cab and picked these people up. And there were at least a couple of them in the back of this cab. Now, I grabbed this shot off the internet because I could not find one of Richard Branson dressed up like a cabbie. But he looked a little bit like this guy. He definitely did not look like himself. But they had cameras and microphones in that cab so they could pick up the conversations between the people that he was driving. Now, he had the little glass screen between the passengers and himself. So they thought he couldn't really hear what was going on. And some of the things that got said behind his back, not necessarily very uplifting or flattering. But they did get to the point where there was going to be the big gasp moment. And that moment came after they had been dropped off at their motel, after they had had a chance to feel like, okay, I'm stretching my limbs, getting ready for the big interview. I can't wait for tomorrow. It's going to be a great big day. I get to meet Sir Richard Branson himself, and he's going to actually talk to me. And I hope that I make it into the top three because I could be great for his company. And then they had a big TV monitor. And they sat the candidates down, and they said, we just wanted to show you a little something that has happened since you have arrived, and then they got to watch themselves and their own conversations in the cab. That was the gasp moment. Now, for some, they had really gone out of their way to treat that cabbie with kindness and empathy, and they shook his hand. They thanked him so much for his service to them. One of them even went out of his way to find out the cabbie's name, and he referred to him by his first name. But some of the other people hadn't done that. And they, of course, were gasping for the other reasons because they were thinking, oh, what have I done? This is not going well for me. If they had only known the identity of the person who was serving them at the time, that kind of helps set up for us a little bit of what we're going to be looking at today about Jesus' identity and how it's tied together with his purpose, and how some people were starting to get it, but they were still just partially there. Jesus had been teaching the disciples, as we saw in the build-up to this with context, that there were some who had partial sight, like the blind man, who started to see partially, but he said, I see people, but they're like trees walking around. And then he finished the deal, and he became completely healed, and he had perfect sight after that. And I think there was a correlation to the fact that some of us need to continue to have more lessons before our spiritual sight becomes refined. 
And then I also mentioned last week that sometimes, even after we have been walking with the Lord for a long time, we develop sort of spiritual cataracts. That's my term. It's not the Bible term. Meaning that we still need a little surgery for God to remove those things so that we can see clearly because we're kind of looking through some filters that are not helping us see him as clearly as we would like. So then we get to the part. This is the big teachable moment. This is the, fun, the one we've been waiting for. I told you they were heading towards Caesarea Philippi. And I showed you the picture a few weeks ago where Joy and I got to visit that in Israel. And they had that big cave chiseled out of the side of a cliff where they used to have the god Pan placed up in there. And it was also the place where there were waters that would gush out, an artesian well that would gush right through the rock and into these shallow, wonderful, still pools leading me behind the still waters. You can just imagine some of the phrases that Jesus had used. And that was the place when he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And there was a nickname for that place. It was Hell's Gate, where the water was coming out. So he's talking about the pressure that was so great and the life-giving, fresh, might even say living water, that was pushing out that not even the strongest rock could hold it back. And so that was all taking place at this location, and this is where we arrive in Mark's gospel. So we find out that Simon Peter gets a little bit of it. He gets it kind of, but not all of it. He gets the, the part right about Jesus being the Messiah, but he's only partially correct about how the Messiah will accomplish that purpose. So on his report card, he would have gotten a nice check mark next to identity. Yes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the promised one. Check. But in just a few moments after Jesus started to teach him some more things and Peter opened his big mouth again, then we find out that he probably would have gotten a frowny face on his report card for that answer. So let's read that. Mark 8, 27 through 38. And then we're going to dig in and find out why this is such a watershed moment in Mark. Mark 8. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, um, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Hmm. Then he asked them, well, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you're the Messiah, or you're the Christ. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked openly about this with his disciples, Peter, can you imagine, <laughs> actually took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. And Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, 
you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, the gospel, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We're praying that God will illuminate this passage to us and help make it come alive in each of our lives as well. So we need context because just as in real estate, it's all about location, location, location. With interpretation of Scripture, it's all about context, context, context. So say context with me. Very good. Making sure you're still awake. In the previous miracle, the blind man saw only partially at first, and then after encountering the real Jesus, the man finally saw clearly. And that's what's happening with the disciples. So there's still some healing that needs to happen. There's still some aha moments that need to go on, especially with Simon Peter. But he's partially there. But this chapter and this incident is literally the center of the Gospel of Mark. And I had to look that up. Some, I heard some commentator say that, and I said, oh, wait a minute. Oh, there's 16 chapters. This actually really is the center of the gospel, which means that this is super important for us to grasp as well because I don't think it's any accident that there's this denouement moment and everything climaxes here. It would be as in true crime dramas when the music is starting to change tone a little bit and it ramps up and then there's this crescendo and it changes a little bit from subtle to being more... Bum, 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 dum, 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 building, 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 and a bum, da, da, dun, 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 And you wait for it, and then bang, this is what happens. And that's what happens when Peter opens his mouth and says, well, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the big aha moment. But then it doesn't take very long for that to start going, after that, because Peter says, I'm going to reprimand you, Jesus. Now, in a true crime drama, you add up all the evidence that they present to you, and they do it in such a way, it's kind of formulaic, but it works. They add up all the evidence so you can see it and try to start making up your own mind about who you think, who done it. Now, I, I happen to know for a fact that my wife, who's helping with the kids out there, but uh, she has a sixth sense for these things. And she always manages to grab it right within the first one or two minutes. So she just spoils the whole show. <laughs> She'll look at me and she goes, yeah, the butler did it. And sure enough, you get to the end with all this evidence and then they get into the, the courtroom and they're starting to lay it all out. Bang, it was the butler. So that's kind of what Mark is starting to do for us because he's been presenting lots of evidence. We're seeing Jesus encounters with lots of different kinds of people. We're seeing the juxtaposition between religious leaders who are all about their religion and legalism. And then you see other people who are starting to see the miracles that Jesus is doing. And they're praising God and giving glory to God because they say, we've never seen anything quite like this before. And you're building the evidence and trying to figure out, okay, yeah, who is this guy? Because he's clearly no ordinary man, but is he really who we think he is? And then we get to this passage in Mark 8, and we get the gasp moment. And then we also find out that there's sort of a slogan that we could have written for all the people back then about the Messiah. Highly anticipated, largely misunderstood. 
because he most certainly was. He was very highly anticipated. We know that. There were a lot of people who had been looking at the prophets, and they would say, oh, we know he's coming. We even see and we celebrate at the Christmas story that there were the magi who were looking in the heavens at the stars, and they had read the prophecies. So they knew something was up. So he was highly anticipated, but he was still largely misunderstood because they had in their mind, perhaps from spiritual cataracts or whatever, what they thought Messiah would be like. And Jesus came to show them it was very different than what they had in mind. Charles Wesley, he was the, the real hymn writer of the Wesley family. Charles wrote some amazing hymns. And one of them is something that we heard in the prelude music just before this service started. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Now, if you go through some of the additional lyrics to that, then you start to understand that there were some methods involved in how we can find that rest and what was necessary to be released from sin. And that's why Jesus started teaching the disciples about his death, burial, and resurrection. And that was something Peter didn't want to hear about. I don't know about your families, but we've had some very honest discussions of, about end of life. I'm old enough now that we've had to talk about that with my parents, my grandparents. Now we start bringing things up for my children, and we're starting to say, you guys need to be able to talk openly about what's going to happen when we, you know, shuffle off this mortal coil because we're not going to live forever. And uh, my sweet kids are very kind, and they say, oh, no, Dad, we know you're going to live to be 150, so don't worry about it. And uh, I'm, you know, I... I tell them that's probably not going to happen so we really do need to be honest about that and Jesus was being very honest and he was saying folks this is how this is going to be accomplished but Peter wasn't having it and so he was literally going to reprimand Christ even though he was standing right there in front of him many people just didn't get the important part of Jesus arrival which had to do with his purpose and the method that was going to be involved in accomplishing that purpose. It was all about the death, burial, and resurrection. Say that, death, burial, and resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. Now you've got the gospel. And that's what Jesus was trying to get to Peter. And it's like, Peter, it's that simple. Death, burial, and resurrection. But Peter wasn't having it. So we need to know that his identity is really strongly tied to his purpose. The first thing Jesus did after confirming his identity was to teach about his death. Can you see why Jesus hadn't revealed his identity just yet to a lot of people? Because if the disciples who had been walking with him for quite some time by this point didn't get it, if they only partially understood, I can imagine it could have been very chaotic if Jesus had just announced himself and said, here I am, I'm the promised one, people would have been all up in arms. There was a timing that had to be fleshed out as well. And God's timing sometimes doesn't look like our timing. That's another good lesson for me. I need to recognize that. That sometimes when I think, oh, how come this hasn't taken place yet? Or how come this person hasn't quite understood a thought that I would like for them to think? Or an idea that I've been trying to get across and they just don't quite buy it yet. I remember that God's timing is perfect, and it was perfect with Jesus Christ. So what was the perception? We talked about this in more detail, so we're going to rat-a-tat-tat pretty quickly through these, but it's important for us to remind ourselves of them, as Mark does for us. The perception of who do people think that Jesus is. They thought that in his day, I think a lot of people still feel similarly to the way they misinterpret who Jesus is, even today. Well, they say, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. All of these, 
are good answers because they were good people, but they were wrong answers. They would have gotten all check marks in the wrong way with the red pen if they had missed them on their test. But that reveals how confused people can be about Jesus and who he really is, who he was. Some people would think, okay, well, if he's John the Baptist, then he's going to be more like a moral reformer. That's what we see about what people thought about John. Because he came saying, repent, make straight the way of the Lord. And so they thought of him as being sort of a moral reformer. And if they thought Jesus was John the Baptist, either come back from the dead or as his ghost or something, they might have thought of Jesus as being more of a moral reformer rather than knowing John's real purpose, which was a forerunner. He was the herald to introduce the real one that had been promised. And he even said so. He said, I'm not the one. There is one coming. And he's so much bigger and better and more supreme than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. But there is one coming. But you can tell that people were misinterpreting even what John the Baptist was supposed to have done. So there was confusion about that. If they thought that Jesus was John, then they missed John's ministry and what John was trying to get them to understand. And Mark won't allow us to make that mistake. And I appreciate that about Mark. When you read through Mark's gospel, he's very direct. Now, I grew up in a family where if you spoke too directly, that was considered rude. And so we learned to be very diplomatic in how we would word stuff. And then I got to be around other families, including some of the members of my wife's family, whom I love dearly. And her uh, grandmother, Grammy Fellows, was very direct. And I had to adjust my thinking that sometimes people are being as loving as they can be, and they are direct at the same time, and that's okay. You know, we lived in New York for a short time, and there are people out on the East Coast that, you know, you would think, those people must be having a knife fight. I need to call 911. They go, no, we're just discussing dinner. Do you want spaghetti? Close, we're going to have spaghetti. What do you think we're going to have? Ah, you know, they talk with their hands, and they yell, and they shout, and stuff like that, and then they make up, and they go, oh, I thought that was, okay, yeah, we're good. And then they move forward. Well, there are some times when we need to be direct, and Jesus was trying to be direct and compassionate when he was telling Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. He was very direct by that, by saying, you've got your mind somewhere it doesn't need to be because you're thinking the thoughts of man, you're not thinking the thoughts of God. So Mark doesn't allow us to make the mistake to think that those things are okay and uh, that these misperceptions are okay either. How about Elijah ushering in Messiah? If we know that he's not just a moral reformer, saying, get your life straight, clean up your act. That's not what Jesus came to do. Well, then what about Elijah? Well, that was important. It was important for them back then because that meant that they were thinking about some of the eschatological events, the end times events, because they knew, as we have mentioned, that even in their Passover celebrations, they would set an empty chair at the table and say, that one's for Elijah. And they would send one of the children to the door, go check, see if he's there. He'd throw open the door and look out and he'd look, down the block and down the other side, and he'd come back. Is he there yet? Nope, he's not there yet. Okay, we got to keep waiting for him. That was a part of their celebration. So Elijah was a big deal because they thought that was going to usher in this great big coming of somebody that would usher in something huge for them. Nice person, great prophet, not the Messiah. John came preaching in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he wasn't Elijah, and neither was Jesus. So, for some to think that Jesus was Elijah meant that they thought he was really important. So I give them credit for that. I'll give them half a check mark on their report card. That was good because they knew he was important. They were already starting to elevate him to the point that somebody that was highly esteemed in Jewish culture 
was there in their midst, that's a good thing. But they still fell short of getting his true identity when they were saying that he might be actually Elijah. Because Elijah really was the forerunner of Christ. It reveals something else. And Jesus says this toward the very end of that passage that we just read. Because he's talking about when he comes back again, that some things are really going to happen then. They didn't understand about this two-step process, the end times landscape. Now, I've been out to Colorado several times. And when we drove up from Pueblo one time, going to go up across uh, some of those peaks and some gorgeous driving, you can get to one spot where it feels fairly flat from where you are, but you can look ahead and see this gigantic mountain range that you're going to have to go across. I can't imagine what the early explorers must have felt like when they got to that. They'd be looking up going, hmm, you sure you want to do this? It's not too late. We could go back the other way. No, we're going. But my thinking, especially as a kid, when we would go camping out there in Colorado, is that the first time we went over there, I'm thinking, as soon as we get across that peak, we're going to be on the other side of the Rocky Mountains, and then we'll be in the valley, and everything will be flat, and we'll all be good again. And you drive, and you drive, and you go up and up and up and up and up, and then you cross the top of the peak, and you look over. Oh, there's another equally tall peak just in front of you, and you're not through the Rocky Mountains yet. There's still more to come, and that's kind of what was happening here, if we can use this analogy. They're thinking, if we could just cross this mountain ridge, and if this guy shows up, then we're going to be good to go. Everything is fine with us. What they didn't know is that we're living right now in the valley between the first mountain, his first coming, and the second mountain, which is the second coming. So he's not here yet. And when he does come, things are really going to ramp up and things are going to get very good for those who are in Christ and very bad for those who aren't. So for people to think that Jesus was either John or Elijah meant that they missed both of what those two people had been talking about. And then we get to one of the prophets. Now this one probably even approximates more what we see today in the misinterpretation of what people think of when they think of Jesus. There's actually one major religion that they actually teach this out of their holy book, that Jesus is a prophet. But he's only one of the prophets. He's not the Messiah, the promised one who is co-equal with God, one of the three persons of the Trinity. They don't teach that. But they would say, yeah, he's gifted. He's a great teacher. And I hang on his words. I love the Beatitudes. And they like to, to pick and choose a few things from that. I know a couple of presidents have said, well, I just live by the golden rule. I think that pretty well covers it. Billy Graham actually even got honest with one of those presidents. And he goes, oh, but Mr. President, that's not enough. <laughs> he was trying to t tell them about needing to repent of our sins and to invite Jesus to become the Lord of our life. We can't just live by the golden rule and say, yep, I'm being Christ-like. It's good teaching, definitely, but it was his purpose in coming to forgive us of sin that's at the root and at the center of the gospel. So there are many today who treat Jesus like he's one of the prophets. He's a good guy, good teacher. So it gives Jesus some status, again, but it's still not the status that all the other prophets in the Bible had given Jesus. And that's the problem with calling him one of the prophets. Every other one of the prophets was pointing to him as the fulfillment of their prophecies. So how can he be one of the prophets when he's actually the one they were pointing to? So that's a misconception. So here's what we do learn from the evidence in this God-breathed scripture that we have. Jesus is much more than a mere man. He's much more than just a mere messenger of God, one of the prophets. 
or John the Baptist or Elijah. Jesus is actually God himself. That's what we're getting ready to celebrate in the Advent season. Emmanuel, God with us. He came down, left his kingly glory, and on purpose came to become one of us as God's audio-visual demonstration so we could clearly see God's heart. And then, most importantly, he's not calling us just to right living. He's not a moral reformer. He's saving us through his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the purpose. That's why we have to link his identity with his purpose. And that's what Jesus is trying to start getting across to the disciples, most of whom really wouldn't get it until after he was resurrected. And then he said, and my Holy Spirit will remind you of all that I've been teaching. And he started doing that. Why do you think we need to continue to meet in worship and study the scriptures? Because we need reminding a lot. I don't know about you, but I've been in this word for years. And I still come back to a passage and I'll think, man, it's been a while since I read that. I'd forgotten that. We need to be reminded that's why gathered worship is so important. And I'm so grateful that all of you are here for that and you get that. Because we're a part of doing exactly what Jesus was doing for the, the disciples back then. And he keeps doing it for us. We're reminded of all these truths that are so important with us. So Jesus basically had to in instruct Peter. He said, Peter, you can't have a Savior without also having a suffering servant. Because I am going to be mistreated. I am going to be killed. I am going to be buried. But I am going to be resurrected. I had a chat a couple of weeks ago, about a week and a half ago, with one of the young men from our church, very astute young guy. And uh, somehow... The topic of parents came up and lessons that we'd learned, and I started waxing eloquently about looking back because I'm an old guy, and I start thinking back about the younger years, and I, I said, you know, I have the luxury of decades of looking back, so I have retrospection, and I realized how much my parents gave up for me. I see it more clearly the older I get. Every passing year, I think, Mom, Dad, you gave up so much for my sister and me. They would sacrifice so that we could have the life they wanted us to have in so many ways. And God's been sort of reminding me of that. And I was surprised at how emotional I got thinking back to those things. I, I kind of got a little bit teary-eyed because I said, you know, in one of my walks that I was taking trying to just talk with the Lord, I've read a couple of books on heaven, and one of the guys, Randy Alcorn, has this nice big thick book about heaven. He said, a lot of people figure that they can just talk to their relatives out loud. He says, I'm not sure if they hear us or not, but I know Jesus does. We can always talk to Jesus. And I said, so I'm going to take Randy's advice. And I just asked Jesus, I said, Jesus, if you get a chance to talk to my mom and dad, would you tell them that I actually do get it a little better now? And then I'm looking back at all these things that I recall that, went, man, I, I signed up for this really quickly. And they thought, oh, but who's going to pay for that? And dad stepped in and said, we're, we're going to help you with that. We'll take care of the rest. And so I, I gave a little tiny bit, but then he paid for the whole rest of that so that I could go on tour with this trombone playing thing that I was doing in college. There are other things like that that just time and again, I think, I get it now. So much more. Would you tell them thank you for all the ways that they were examples to me in laying their lives down and giving of themselves so freely so that I could be where I am today and so that I could understand the gospel? And I think that sometimes once we get it, like Peter finally did, it starts to connect with us that Jesus was continually trying to establish a relationship. 
it's still all about the relationship. It's all about that. And when I think about the times that later in life I had talked to my dad honestly and said, Dad, do you remember the time when this happened? Because I was really kind of looking for forgiveness. I think that's what we all crave. And I said, do you remember that? Because I feel really bad about that. He said, well, fortunately for you, I have absolutely no memory of that incident whatsoever. And I thought, isn't that great? And isn't that a great example of what God does for us? We need forgiveness, and that's what Christ came to do for us so that he could wipe that stuff clean. And when we see him and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and if we start trying to bring up some sin in our life because we want to get forgiveness for that, he'll say, already done. It's already done. It's been cast into the deepest ocean, never to be remembered again. You don't have to worry about that. And I think, man, that's what I desire so much is for people to know that Christ, the Christ that we're seeing presented to us in Mark's gospel and in the other gospels, the God who loves us so much because there's so much misinformation and misperceptions about God and about Jesus even today. And I think that one of the things that I see we believers being called to do is to continue to live out loud the kind of grace and love that Christ had for us toward other people. Even if they hurt our feelings, and even if they don't get it, and even if they say, oh, you're washed up, this is superstitious, we, you know, I don't understand, I'm glad that's working for you, but that's not for me. But we've got to continue to live our life in such a way, just as Jesus did, until one day the scales will be peeled away and they'll see clearly, oh, I get it now. I see who Jesus is. And I see that he died for my sins, and I need that forgiveness. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's what I hope for. And I pray that all of us will continue to remind ourselves and be reminded what kind of folks he wants us to be so that other people can see him clearly in our lives and be drawn into that same relationship too. Let's pray for that to happen. Father, this continues to be, uh, I think, even a, a stronger burden than I expected it to be. And perhaps it is because I am getting older and I'm getting several steps closer to heaven one day. And the more I study, the more I'm absolutely positively confirmed in my faith. And I know that you are who you claimed to be, that you're still revealing yourself to people, that you still put us in contact with other people to rub shoulders with them so that we can accomplish your eternal purposes by sharing our faith in as loving and compassionate and winsome ways as possible. Sometimes by being direct, if that's what they need and if you prompt us to be direct. But in all things, we recognize that you're the one, Father, who brings that spiritual growth in their life. You're the one who opens people's spiritual blind, blinded eyes. We can't do that, so we can just continue to be your agents of grace in the world. And I do pray that we'll be that. I'm still praying for several people that I know that I would really want them to take that step of faith one day and to understand who you are. Not the one that's being misperceived and misrepresented in so many forms and media today, but the one from these Gospels that you've gifted us with. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.